NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Today, in the Fulton County election interference case, Rudy Giuliani's lead lawyer asked the judge if he could be removed from that case. Now, that is the second lawyer to leave Giuliani's Georgia team this week alone. Their departures come on the heels of Mr. Giuliani's former lawyer and longtime friend suing him last month for allegedly unpaid legal bills. We have known for a while now that all is not well in Giuliani land. He has huge legal bills. He is reportedly very short on cash. And now, to add to those troubles, there is a new story out today that at first feels kind of like it's been ripped from the tabloids, but ultimately it could have serious legal consequences for Giuliani and his most important client, Donald Trump. Was there anyone in that conversation who, in your observation, had had, had too much to drink? Uh, like Mayor Giuliani? That was former Trump campaign advisor Jason Miller, claiming that Mr. Giuliani appeared to have had too much to drink on election night 2020. You might remember that very late that night, days before the election had actually been called, Trump held a press conference claiming he had won. And one of the big things we learned from the House January 6th investigation was that almost everyone around Trump that night advised him not to do that. But instead of listening to those people, Trump listened to Rudy Giuliani. I think effectively, Mayor Giuliani was saying, we want it. They're stealing it from us. Where'd all the votes come from? We need to go say that we won. And... Essentially, that anyone who didn't agree with that position was being weak. Mr. Giuliani is adamant that he was not drunk on election night when he was apparently advising the president to go out and falsely claim victory. Giuliani claims the only thing he drank that night was Diet Pepsi. But today, the New York Times is out with a story in which several people claim that Giuliani appeared drunk on election night, slurring his words and carrying an odor of alcohol. The Times reports that for more than a decade... Giuliani's friends believe his drinking had been a problem. The Times cites instances of Giuliani reportedly drinking before leaving for Fox News interviews and even at solemn occasions like a 9-11 anniversary dinner. This is far from the first time Rudy Giuliani has been accused of this kind of behavior. Earlier this summer, Giuliani was sued by a former employee who accused him of sexual assault and harassment, all of which Giuliani denies. But in her lawsuit, this former employee alleges that Giuliani drank all day and night during the post-election period, and she specifically cites two moments in particular. Giuliani's press conference at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, the one he where he falsely claimed that dead people had voted in Pennsylvania, and the press conference when Giuliani's hairspray appeared to melt down the side of his face as he falsely claimed that Venezuela was tampering with our voting machines. This former employee says it was her job to keep Giuliani from looking foolish while he was drunk and that she wasn't there on those days. Again, Giuliani denies all of those allegations. And he denied the allegations in the New York Times today as well. 
New York Times about you have a possible problem with alcohol? <laughs> Maybe I should sue him for that. Comment on that. Yeah, I will comment that if I have an alcohol problem, I should be in the Guinness Book of World Records. 79 years old, and I'm an alcoholic. You know how much I've accomplished? If I had an alcohol problem and I could do all of that, I should be in the Guinness Book of Records. That, thank you, everybody. It's, a, right. it's a typical New York Times malicious lie. I do not have an alcohol problem. I have never had an alcohol problem. It's a big damn lie by a newspaper that's a disgrace and by a reporter who covered me, used to cover me very, very, uh, in a very glowing way, and now is vicious and mean in what she does. Thank and, you. And it, it's my press conference. Rudy Giuliani's personal tragedy is one thing, as are his denials. But whether he was routinely drunk in the post-election period could really matter, legally speaking, for both Giuliani and Donald Trump. A person familiar with the matter tells The New York Times that special counsel Jack Smith is now looking into Giuliani's alleged drinking habits. Last month, three sources told Rolling Stone the same thing. Why? Trump is widely expected to use an advice of counsel defense in his federal trial, essentially claiming that he just took his lawyer's professional advice about what to do in the 2020 post-election period. But that could all be in serious jeopardy if Trump knew his lawyer was drunk while advising him. And Trump, who lost his brother to an alcohol-related heart attack, is not just simply a well-known teetotaler. He seems to take note of what happens when people around him drink. I never had a drink. I never had a glass of alcohol. And I, I, in all fairness, I've watched people and I study people and I, I had a great, in particular, a great tutor on this. But I look and I see what it does to people when they lose control. Joining me now are Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice, and Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Mary and Andrew are, of course, the co-hosts of the indispensable MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. It is an honor to have you both in the flesh here tonight as we try and understand what's going on here. Um, alcoholism is a disease that affects a lot of people. I We have no, we know people in my family that have it, and I'm sure there are viewers out there who have grappled with this as well. And, you know, my heart goes out to everybody who's had to struggle with this. But I want to focus on the sort of legal implications here. Um, can, can you just, Mary, the, the news that Jack Smith is looking into whether Rudy Giuliani was drunk in the post-election period. Can you talk to me a little bit about, does that surprise you, and what specifically could he be looking for? Well, I think, as you indicated in your intro, I mean, one of the things that Jack Smith and, the, and his team are trying to prepare for is an advice of counsel defense. But they're also trying to understand the conspiracy more generally. Right. And so what kind of representations were made, both as counsel and also just in other consultative capacities. And as you indicated, certainly if Mr. Trump was well aware of Mr. Giuliani's intoxication, it would be pretty unreasonable to rely on his advice, even if he was giving legal advice. Now, I will say, I think that already an advice of counsel defense was pretty weak. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, we haven't seen it yet, but we can just surmise because we know all of the White House counsel, all of the Department of Justice, like all of the counsel around Mr. Trump, who are sort of there being paid to be his lawyers as the president of the United States, were telling him there 
was no fraud significant enough to change the results of the election. So he sort of just continued to go shopping until he got a lawyer. Now, when you then add to that, he goes shopping for a lawyer who's potentially inebriated when giving advice. To me, that just makes it that much less reasonable to rely on that. I I gotta say, listening to that tape, Andrew, of Trump saying, I know what happens to people when they drink, the the relationship that he and his own family have had towards alcoholism and alcohol dependency, the fact that he doesn't drink, just purely on a sort of client-lawyer basis, does it surprise you that he would have sought the advice of Rudy Giuliani if he was demonstrably inebriated when he was giving him already accepted, like, controversial advice. Well, if you're trying to essentially shop for advice and this is the best you have is Rudy Giuliani, you know, potentially being drunk, Sidney Powell, who you privately are saying is crazy. Um, You know, you might be, yeah, this is all I have because this is all I can get. Uh, The sober ones, in both sense of the words, are that we're saying, don't do this. Yeah. Um, It's also to add to Mary's uh, point about all of the other lawyers who are White House counsel who are saying this. It's also worth breaking down what exactly is charged here, because there is no advice of counsel where counsel says, oh, yeah, it's fine to threaten Brad Raffensperger with criminal prosecution. That it's not something where there's going to be any claim that Rudy Giuliani said, yeah, that's a great idea. Right. Um, there's going to be no advice of counsel to saying, oh, Jeff Clark has an idea that we're going to send a fake letter to this to Georgia to get them to sort of go our way and to use that. No, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell are not going to be saying, oh, yeah, that's fine. Mm-hmm. So th- you really have to break this down to like what exactly is the even if it's inebriated advice, what is the advice that is actually relevant to the specific parts of the charge? And so I think this has a very, very long road to to have this fly in front of a jury. But, but can I just say so there's there's the reality that White House counsel is out there saying, do do not pass go. Bad idea. Don't do it. And this one person or maybe two, if you're counting Sidney Powell in there, is saying, go for it, have the press conference, claim Venezuela did it, whatever. How does Trump, on the on the issue of inebriation, escape the sort of plausible deniability of saying, well, I didn't know. I didn't know that he was bad lawyer. I didn't know that he was inebriated. I mean, how does Jack Smith go about proving something like that? I mean, for one thing, there are criteria to even get an advice of counsel defense, because the way this comes up in in a trial is that the defense will try to put on enough evidence to support a request for a jury instruction so that the jury could, if they find that you reasonably relied on the advice of counsel, they could potentially acquit on a particular charge. But to even get that, there's criteria that includes that you as the client, first of all, had a counsel relationship mm-hmm. um, that's maybe more clear with respect to Giuliani, maybe less clear with respect to Sidney Powell, but also that you provided your counsel with all relevant information known to you and sought that counsel's advice. So there are a bunch of steps that we still don't know about how he might go to prove. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also part of the things that Jack Smith and his team are looking into. Can I ask what this does, this information, to Rudy Giuliani's defense? He's an unnamed co-conspirator in the federal indictment. Yep. And he's an indicted co-conspirator in the, in the Georgia, Georgia case. case. Yeah. I mean, he's vehemently suggesting that he had nothing to do with alcohol in the post-election period, that this is a smear, a smear job. Does it change? Does it inform his defense at all if there is information like this out there? 
Well, you know, the reason this could be relevant in two ways, one, as we just talked about to the former president, but to Rudy Giuliani, I mean, if he was continuously drunk for during the time period charged, he could have a diminished capacity defense. You could say, I didn't form the intent necessary. Um, obviously, that's not the road he's going, going down because um, he's saying you know, publicly this is not true. Um, you, that it would be a very, very difficult defense, given the time period that's involved, right. to say that you're drunk so long for so much and so impaired. No, it's it's possible. But he now, though, having said you know, the clip said. that you just said, it doesn't seem like that's, that's where he's going. What does it practically mean, Mary, that, first of all, he's in pretty significant financial straits, and his lawyers in the Georgia case, two of them have left this week. What are the implications for that? Do they need to have, do they, do they effectively need to have, does he need to have local representation in Georgia? How much does this complicate his defense down there? He will need to have local representation. And we know that, you know, that's, a, that's something that each one of the defendants have had to, you know, obtain before they were able to appear, appear in court. It could result in some delays there. Although, as we know, uh, the first trial that's going to go forward is the trial of Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell at the end of this month. So it's going to be some time before the others go to trial, if at all. And um, surely by then he'll have local counsel, although it's difficult when you can't afford to pay. Well, right. And you can go to the court and you can say, um, I am too poor. I am too indigent. I need you to appoint counsel for me. But to do that, you know, he wouldn't be able to continue to maintain some of the properties that he maintains, right. living the life that he maintains, and still be able to qualify for a public defender, for example. Um, so it remains to be seen what his legal scenario would be. And, you know, this this sometimes is the kind of thing that leads to plea discussions, um, because if you really aren't going to be able to retain counsel to fully and zealously defend you because, you know, of your financial condition or because people refuse to do it. Right. Um, sometimes that is a reason to try to seek some sort of resolution. Well, that would be dramatic for both Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump. I, I will just say to anybody who hasn't read the story, it is tragic it's and it very much traces the, the breakdown of a man who once had the admiration of a lot of people in this country. Um, but we're not done with you yet, Mary McCord and Andrew Reisman. I'm never letting you go. Uh, please stick around because we have a lot more to get to tonight. House Republicans float some interesting names. I guess that's what we'll call it to be the next speaker of the House, including Donald Trump. We're going to get reaction from Democrat Pramila Jayapal about what her party makes of the mayhem unfolding across the aisle. But first, Donald Trump leaves his New York civil fraud trial in a huff and plays the racism card on his way out the door. But New York's attorney general is not having it. That is all coming up next. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota. So little time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. 
Donald Trump is newly gagged, ordered yesterday by the New York judge presiding over his civil fraud case, not to speak about any clerks or staff members of the court. However, that limited gag order has not stopped the former president from escalating his attacks, this time on New York Attorney General Letitia James and Judge Arthur and Goron himself. Today, on day three of this trial, Trump called the attorney general a racist and a dirty cop while also using a racially loaded epithet against her. Inside the courtroom, Trump was reportedly more vocal than he had been on previous days. He expressed his frustrations about not having a jury trial, something he potentially could have had if his lawyers requested one. They did not. Halfway through the day, the former president seemed to have had enough. And during the lunch break, he stormed out to complain to reporters. I'm here, stuck here, and I can't complain. I'd rather be right now in Iowa. I'd rather be in New Hampshire, South Carolina, or Ohio, or a lot of other places. But I'm stuck here because I have a corrupt attorney general. They made up a fake case. They're fraudulent people. And the judge already knows what he's going to do. He's a Democrat judge. I'm stuck here. I'd rather be in Iowa. That's what Trump said before he left on his private jet for Florida. So not stuck. Also not in Iowa. Shortly after he departed, Attorney General Letitia James had this to say. Mr. Trump's comments were offensive. They were baseless. They were void of any facts and or any evidence. What they were were comments that unfortunately fomented violence and comments that I would describe as race baiting. I will not be bullied. And so Mr. Trump is no longer here. The Donald Trump show is over. This was nothing more than a political stunt. With me tonight, Mary McCord and Andrew Weissman. Um, Andrew, uh, <clears throat> how much further can Trump go here? He's a, in addition to those comments, he called Judge Angoron uh, someone who is run by the Democrats. He already knows what he's going to do. The whole system is corrupt. Angoron came out of the clubhouse. I mean, at what point is there a gag order extended toward to the judge? Well, it's interesting because the gag order that was issued yesterday was narrow. It was about the judge's staff. And that part seemed to work. Um, and so Lawrence O'Donnell talked about this, which is thinking of him as sort of the cowardly lion, which is a bully being called out. You know, Donald Trump does not want to go to jail. And these judges, both in the civil case and in four criminal cases, have the power if he continues yeah. doing this. Um, in fact, on October 16th, the D.C. federal judge is having a hearing on this very issue. So if he continues down this road, that'll be for Judge Chutkin to figure out, should there be additional restrictions? Um, and I think the line, at least for me, is looking to language that is sort of calling for, whether intentional or not, violence. Yeah. Um, that's really the real issue. That's why the reason that, that the judge was so concerned about the comments about his staff. I do think one thing that's very interesting is this week we saw both the attorney general of the United States and now Letitia James speaking out. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about this, you know, the disparity, because most of the times prosecutors don't speak. They speak only in court. I thought it was very interesting. And I actually think commendable for them to be picking their moments to talk about not the guilt of the defendant, mm -hmm. not to cross the line and to, to, to talk about why he's so guilty, but rather to sort of show that they're not really going to put up with this and they're going to pull the intent 
integrity of the process and the institution. I thought it was really interesting and a good sign that they're not sticking to the sort of older model, which is you don't say anything at all. Well, that's I mean, Jack Smith has not said anything. He's filed, you know, he's made very clear that the DOJ would like to have some kind of limited speech uh, order imposed on President, former President Trump, which is the case that you mentioned in in that response there, Andrew, the Judge, Judge yep. Chutkin's case. My question is, he, to yes, to some degree, the gag, the limited gag order prevented Trump from saying anything disparaging about the clerk. Right. It certainly didn't prevent him from saying anything disparaging about the attorney general or the judge in this case. It's like whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. And one would assume that that gag order has to be expanded to cover more pro- people involved in this case. But I guess the question I have for you, Mary, is are any of these judges actually prepared to mete out the punishment that comes with a violation? Well, so there's a couple of different types of punishment. Like, I think first, I think we'll see judges, and particularly when Judge Chutkin has her hearing in on October 16th, she will be weighing Mr. Trump's First Amendment rights, particularly as someone who is running for office, um, against the threat that he poses to those people who he is denigrating, who he is attacking, and knowing, because we all know this, and this is replete in Jack Smith's motion and his reply, that there is this call and response uh, effect. Uh, Donald Trump says something disparaging, somebody issues a threat toward that person. He says something disparaging, somebody takes a gun and tries to attack the FBI, right? So he, th- these judges know that. So I think they're going to try to thread the needle here with air, uh, orders that are narrow enough to not tread on his First Amendment rights to be a candidate, but restrict his speech that in, that has the potential for inciting violence. And then in terms of what they will do in the criminal cases, obviously, these are conditions of his bail, his yeah. pretrial release. I don't think they would immediately jail him, but they might do other incremental steps. One of the things Andrew and I've talked about before is potentially saying you have to have your social media posts cleared by your attorneys or run past your attorneys. The judge in the civil what case. What about his mouth? How do you do that? <laughs> that's, well, that's what just it, because, you know, this statement out on the courthouse, uh, you know, the hallway would not be something that could get pre-cleared. So then the question becomes, you know, what you know, what else? And and I will note in a civil case, even though that's not a case that involves a, a condition of your pretrial release, if you if a judge issues an order and you violate that's contempt. And you can be held criminally or civilly liable for contempt of court. That could be financial penalties, and that could also be jailing. So jail is an option, whether it's civil or criminal. It's just, I do think the judges will re- be reluctant to yes. take that option, unless he keeps just violating, violating, violating. And I think each time he's going to go try to go right up that line, and then sometimes, you know, he may go right over it. Do you think Judge Chutkin is looking at what Judge Angoran is doing up in New York and saying, "Okay, when I figure out what kind of speech I'm limiting, I got to keep in mind what's been happening there and perhaps have a sort of more aggressive initial ruling on this because of the precedent that's set in New York? I think that she is going to be thinking about every statement that he has made in writing or orally from the moment that he has been under indictment. And I think she will also be looking at whether he complied with an order um, from uh, from the judge here. Uh, and I think for, in some ways, if he is complying with this order, that's sort of good for him, right? Mm-hmm. In that he, it means that he can actually tailor his conduct to an order. And she would be much less likely, I think, to jail him immediately and would be thinking about a more narrowly tailored 
order. Um, but the, the main issue is this potential for violence, because there's that that has to be the thing that is weighing, I think, uh, should be on all of these judges, is that you don't want to be doing this after the fact. Yes, absolutely. And we know what the track record here is. Mary McCord and Andrew Weissman, two of my favorite brilliant minds to listen to, both on pod, in podcast form and in person. You can catch more of them on their indispensable MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Thank you guys both for joining me. Thank you. We have a lot more this evening. The race to fill the House Speaker's chair after Kevin McCarthy's dramatic removal. That race has officially begun. And former President Trump wasted no time turning the occasion into a spectacle. Look at that. That's next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Inside the Capitol building, there are official portraits of all of the former speakers of the House. In recent years, that wall has grown to include the speakers of this century, Nancy Pelosi, John Boehner, and Paul Ryan. But there is one 21st century speaker who is absent from that wall, and for good reason. A warning, some of what you are about to hear in this segment involves references to sexual abuse. Federal prosecutors say Dennis Hastert was paying hush money to a man who was 14 years old when Hastert sexually abused him in a motel room decades ago. The government says Hastert abused two other high school wrestlers and the team manager while he was the coach. Former Republican Speaker of the House Dennis Hastert was essentially wiped from the history books after pleading guilty in a hush money case that revealed he had serially sexually abused teenagers as a high school wrestling coach. When you hear the words Republican speakers of the House, Republicans really do not want you to think about Dennis Hastert. And today, House Republicans are trying to determine who their next speaker will be. And you would think that one of the most basic criteria for Republicans here would be that none of their candidates should be accused of any involvement in any wrestling-related sexual misconduct scandals. Right? A high-profile Republican congressman is under fire tonight. A new lawsuit alleging that when Jim Jordan worked as a wrestling coach at Ohio State University, he turned a blind eye to sexual misconduct by a team doctor. 
a college wrestling referee named as John Doe 42, says in the mid-90s, he told Jordan, then Ohio State's assistant wrestling coach, that the team's physician, Richard Strauss, performed a sex act in front of him in a shower. Former Ohio State wrestler Danyasha Yetz also says he complained directly to Jim Jordan after he says Strauss once tried to pull his pants down. I had told him, you know, hey, this is this is not right. Jim Jordan has previously denied any knowledge of the sexual abuse alleged to have taken place at the university where he was a wrestling coach. He has called the allegations against him politically motivated, but his accusers have stood by their claims. And Jim Jordan is now one of the Republicans running to be the next Speaker of the House. While Jordan has already received the backing of a broad swath of House conservatives, he is not the only candidate in the running. Republican Majority Leader Steve Scalise has also announced his intention to run for Speaker. And Steve Scalise is hardly an uncontroversial pick himself. As a state representative in 2002, Steve Scalise gave a speech to a white nationalist organization founded by former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke. Scalise has since apologized and claimed that he did not know the organization he was speaking to was a hate group. But David Duke has claimed that Steve Scalise used to regularly communicate with Duke's gubernatorial campaign at the time. And a Louisiana political reporter claims Scalise once described himself to her as David Duke without the baggage, which is what exactly? To be fair, Steve Scalise has since earned considerable goodwill from his colleagues after being shot at a 2017 congressional baseball practice and severely injured, as well as announcing a recent blood cancer diagnosis. But at a moment when the Republican Party is facing broad criticism for its association with white supremacy, Steve Scalise certainly has his own complicated backstory. And then there is the other potential candidate for speaker, a guy named Donald Trump. Several conservatives have already started to promote a Trump speakership. And Trump did not exactly close the door on that idea when he told reporters today, if I can help them during the process, I would do it. Now, I don't need to list for you all the reasons that Donald Trump would be a controversial choice for speaker, but there is one important reason that seems to have gotten lost in the shuffle here. House Republicans' own rules bar Donald Trump from becoming speaker. According to Rule 26A of the House Republican Conference rules, A member of the Republican leadership shall step aside if indicted for a felony for which a sentence of two or more years imprisonment may be imposed. Donald Trump has been indicted on several such felonies, which is all to say the race to become the next Republican speaker is showing up, is shaping up to be exactly the mess you might expect it to be. I'm going to speak with Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal about what that means for the House and what Democrats plan to do during all of this coming up next. Republican Congressman Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan today confirmed that they would each like to be next in line to hold the speaker's gavel. Now, Scalise and Jordan are not exactly known as moderate consensus builders, but if this sounds like it's going from bad to worse for House Democrats, Axios is reporting that at least some moderate Republicans may be considering another alternative. My advice, one of these moderates told Axios, is to cut a deal with the Dems and stick it to the nitwits. The nitwits here being presumably the MAGA right wing. Another moderate Republican, Congressman Don Bacon, added, I would recommend seeking a more bipartisan way forward. We need to make some rules changes, no doubt about it. We need to make these eight McCarthy rebels irrelevant. 
Joining me now is Democrat from Wisconsin, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She, of course, leads the House Progressive Caucus. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you for being here. Um, I want to read back to a quote from you before the motion to vacate vote. There is reason after reason to just let Republicans deal with their own problems. Let them wallow in their pigsty of incompetence and inability to govern. I believe we call that a mic drop quote. Um, <laughs> Congresswoman, and while the pigsty of incompetence has been, uh, the doors to that pigsty have been thrown open for the world to see, is there any movement inside the Democratic caucus to have conversations with Republicans as they try and figure out who the next Speaker of the House is going to be? Well, Alex, look, I, the picking a speaker is the first duty of the majority. And it is never the case, historically, it is never the case that Democrats would vote for a Republican speaker. This is really their family problem. And they have shown, it's been exactly 10 months now, um, they have shown that they can't govern over and over again. I mean, the idea that there is anyone more extreme than Kevin McCarthy is uh, just not true, because Kevin McCarthy, whether you think he was extreme or he governed as an extremist, the reality is everything he did was uh, really contributed to the destruction of our institution. The debt ceiling, turning that into a fight in the first place, taking the country to the brink of uh, a debt crisis, taking the country to the brink of a shutdown crisis, and then passing bills at every turn that empowered um, his right-wing extremists in the caucus. And he, he did that from day one, Alex, when he agreed to a rules change after 15 rounds of voting um, for speaker. Anybody else would have been humiliated at that point. But Kevin McCarthy kept going, and he basically got to the place where any single person in the House could bring up a motion to vacate. And that's why he's been catering in this way. Any speaker that comes after him is going to have the same issue. So this is not for Democrats to wade into into this pigsty. It is really for Republicans to choose their speaker, but recognize that we're always ready to work with Republicans who want to be bipartisan. Their structure right now does not permit that. The candidates they're putting forward, uh, I don't think, are going to be any different. And the so-called moderates in their party have not stood up to any of this. There are so many times, Alex, when they could have crossed over, just five of them, crossed over and passed sensible reforms with us, whether it was, you know, averting the shutdown, whether it was, uh, you know, the debt ceiling crisis, whether it was sensible bipartisan legislation, but they haven't. Okay, let me make one thing clear. I called you the congresswoman from Wisconsin, which is obviously not true. Washington state. I apologize for that. But let me understand what you're saying here, because I don't I am not by any means suggesting that this is Democrats mess to clean up. But as they as the old proverb goes, every crisis is an opportunity. And if there is right. if if this situation presents an opportunity for Democrats to steer Republicans and moderates to a more empowered position to pick someone who is not beholden to the right flank, wouldn't it make sense to use that opportunity? Well, I think it depends on what it is. And any kind of discussions along those lines would have to be negotiated by our leader, our choice for speaker, Hakeem Jeffries, not individually. It's got to be something that would really bring power to the caucus to be able to govern. Because remember, whatever we do that contributes to a Republican speaker being there, we will be blamed 
for everything that they do. So maybe they do some good things, but what about all the bad things that they do? So if, if there was some way, perhaps down the road where a bunch of Republicans came and said, let's think about power sharing agreements, maybe, but that's above my pay grade right now. Uh, that is really, I think, something that Republicans would have to want. Clearly, McCarthy didn't want that. I'm not sure any of the current candidates that are running want that either. And so I think it's really important for the country to understand this is not a democratic problem. We, of course, are always open to the opportunities to govern for the American people. But um, th- there's got to be some reasonableness about power sharing, because the other thing I'll just say is, Actually, in some ways, Democrats have been the governing force so far. Republicans could not pass the debt ceiling deal on their own. In fact, Kevin McCarthy made a deal with the president and then immediately reneged on it and then relied on Democratic votes in the rule, which is a procedural motion. We never vote for each other's procedural motions, but a couple of Democrats went over so that we could pass that rule and then ultimately so that 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 debt ceiling um, deal could be could be negotiated, but they continue to rely on us for all of this, and yet they're continuing to do terrible things that hurt the American people in the country. I would I wouldn't even say in some ways the Democrats have been the governing coal, the governing force in American politics. They have been the force. The reason things are getting done is because Democrats have been willing to cross the the aisle and have the tough conversations. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. No disrespect to Wisconsin. (laughs) My sincere apologies for that mistake. Thank you for joining me. Good luck in the dumpster fire that is the Republican-led Congress right now. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Alex. Still ahead this evening, now that House Republicans just booted their leader out, very few of them actually want the job. But there is one guy, a guy who used to live in Washington, D.C., who seems open to holding the speaker's gavel. That's next. It says we'll do whatever is best for the country and for the Republican Party. We'll see. We have some great people. That was Donald Trump outside a New York City courthouse this morning talking about the House Republican effort to draft him to be the next Speaker of the House. You heard that correctly. A few hours later, this is what Trump posted to his social media site. Joining me now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Worth rereading in this season, I'll say. Mark, Every day. <laughs> the entire problem here seems to be that the House Republican conference was too beholden to Trump and the MAGA right. And their solution for it appears to be making Trump speaker of the House. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, I guess you can eliminate the middleman, the middleman in this case being, you know, whoever the speaker is. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of amused by the idea that, that Donald Trump is eager to serve. Um, he just wants what's best for the party, for the institution. I mean, can you imagine him actually taking the gavel and, you know, sort of trying to lead an institution as arcane and as, um, as sort of unruly as the House of Representatives? Uh, I will say uh, that I don't think this is going to happen, but I also uh, you know, I've lived through these last few years. You just never know. Uh, Donald Trump would love the opportunity, I suppose, to to be at the head of the uh, House of Representatives every day, especially with C-SPAN and so forth. Uh, I wouldn't hold your breath, though. Yeah. I mean, I don't actually think it's a possibility. But what's distressing about it is what it signals, 
right? The lesson that perhaps the Republican Party might have taken away from this debacle is we need to circle the wagons and figure out a new, you know, sort of gravitational pull. We need to figure out a new center. And yet they seem to be doing, to some degree, the very opposite, whether it's Donald Trump or Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan. I mean, I guess I would ask you, is this Republican conference capable of learning lessons? No. I mean, I, I think, look, it, it's certainly it's self-interest. I mean, at least Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan serve in the House and they know a little bit about lawmaking and legislating and so forth. I mean, technically, you don't need to serve in the House in order to be Speaker of the House. Um, you know, so Donald Trump could do it. I mean, he's legally, you know, he's allowed to do it. But no, I mean, the lesson here is what, what's I mean, before we even get to who fills that seat. The idea that like members are falling all over themselves to be the one trying to nominate or promote Donald Trump to this job, ostensibly just to win favor with Donald Trump and get the, uh, hey, thanks for the, uh, the nice words phone call, which they all covet, is itself pathetic, but it's also standard operating procedure over the last several, uh, years. And, and again, this is kind of the, the old normal at, of the GOP just prevailing once again. Yeah, the old normal is such, I think, an apt uh, assessment of what's happening here. Because of your <clears throat> intrepid reporting about this uh, part of the Repu- this this generation of the Republican Party, I want to call your attention to something that was making the rounds on social media yesterday, which is the cover of the Young Guns book from, I believe it was 2010. How do you think history will look back at <clears throat> these three individuals and the, what they represented? Yeah, I mean, well, look, I mean, it's, it's, I guess you could probably find that in remainder bins, um, <laughs> around, I mean, or, or, you know, everything must vacate, right? Get, get the, the pun there. I mean, it, it was a moment in time. I mean, this was a fundraising gimmick. This was a branding gimmick. I mean, it, it, no one, I mean, I, I don't think that like today, the Republicans, the Republicans of 2010 were thinking much further beyond the next fundraising or election cycle. But yeah, I mean, that was a moment where, you know, certainly Cantor and, and Ryan and to some degree McCarthy, we're seen as seriously idea driven and, you know, just sort of new idea driven uh, Republicans that could actually lead the party forward. Didn't turn out to be that way. And, and obviously we've seen what happens. You have spent time with Kevin McCarthy um, as part of your reporting. I know you had ice cream with him in 2021 in Bakersfield. And mm-hmm. what came through in that piece was how enamored McCarthy was of celebrity, of fame, I wonder, as someone who's studied the man's character up close, how you think he's processing this moment? Well, I mean, this is a fanboy politician, right? I mean, this is someone who was just lurching from crisis to crisis, trying to extend himself another day. And, and, you know, his one true sort of higher calling was self-perpetuation and actually just making this ride last as long as possible and collecting souvenirs and collecting photos of himself with Kobe Bryant and, and Donald Trump and Arnold Schwarzenegger. He kept showing it off in, in these, um, in these meals we were having out in Bakersfield. And, and look, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a fanboy politician, but it's all very ephemeral. And at the end of the day, and when your gavel's taken away from you, what's left? I mean, it's not like he he has, you know, all of the friends to draw on that he thought. And he said it himself. I know that when this leadership is over, I'm not going to get people laughing at my jokes. I'm not going to get people returning my calls the way they did before. So, I mean, that's the sort of ride he was trying to extend. And I guess today he finds himself waking up to a very different reality. Yeah. Um, the, the, the lack of friends, the lack of uh, people that he could lean on as someone who was known as a sort of glad hander in Congress. The irony, the tragedy of Kevin McCarthy, um, the ineptitude of Kevin McCarthy. Mark Leibovich, I know you have a piece publishing tomorrow on all of this. We will be reading it eagerly. Thank you, as always, for your wisdom and your reporting and everything else. Thank you, Mark. 
Thanks, Alex. That is our show for this evening. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.